You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of Purdue University's Department of Philosophy. I am your host, as always, Matthew Kroll. I am a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Philosophy and the Research Data Libraries. Running the boards today, as always, is Reyes Espinosa. And our guest today, very glad to have him on the show, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy, Taylor Davis. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, our audience, hopefully, by this point knows, but just to give you a brief rundown of kind of how we're going to approach this, I do first want to hear your how you came to study philosophy. I think that's really important for the Grindstone podcast. Um, and from what you've told me in passing, you do have a story to tell there. I will wait for a second before we start that. Um, but I just thought uh, briefly you might want to just introduce yourself, what your work is, what your field is, um, and just let people know what it is you do here in the Department of Philosophy. Okay. Yeah, so um, I am a philosopher of psychology and cognitive science, I think, first and foremost. But then within that, I focus on evolutionary theory and specifically cultural evolution. Um, So I've got a background in philosophy of biology uh, and a sort of deeper, uh, fuller background in philosophy of psychology, and I'm kind of putting those together through culture. I was hired as part of a sustainability cluster hire. Um, so I was yes. hired to work on norms of sustainability, really, or at least that's how that's how I see it, and to bring the cultural evolutionary background to bear on um, questions about norms of sustainability. Um, and have really been enjoying doing that and making some roads in that one. Coming in, I didn't really have much background in sustainability per se. I just had a background in norms and cooperation and culture. And uh, was was brought in though to bring that to bear on questions about sustainability. Um, so that's roughly where I do or what I do, where I come from. Um, what real quick? What's a cluster hire? I, c- cluster hire is where, um, so to speak, from the top down at roughly the provost level, they uh, decide to hire faculty members in different departments and different areas all around a particular theme. Uh, so in this case, the theme was sustainability. But we were hiring people. We ended up hiring people in industrial engineering and civil oh, engineering right. and political science and psychology and anthropology and philosophy, uh, forestry and natural resources. So hired people from all over the place, all to kind of make up something of a team, um, a, a loosely defined team. And we're sort of figuring out how tightly or loosely defined it <laughs> is as we go. Um, but that's already led to um, some good some really good collaborations um and it's your, your background in cooperation i'm sure helps in this sort of yeah, <laughs> yeah collaborative yeah. space right and then also working with scientists from across all kinds of different areas um set me up pretty well to be in an interdisciplinary group nice that's awesome so if i understand you correctly like let's say there's 10 hires in this cluster hire and there might be 10 people 10 different people and they all work in 10 different departments or whatever but you're sort of part of this kind of cohort where they're supposed to be ideally some sort of collaborative research or discovery happening with you and the other people that are part of this cluster i mean is that sort of part of the expectation that you guys yeah Yeah, exactly work together Yeah, yeah that's the idea nice so going back then a little bit just to you know your life even like as an undergraduate or a grad student um 
just quick question. Did you major in philosophy as an undergrad? No. No, you did not. All right. So tell us then, how did, how is it that you came to study philosophy? So yeah, I came into philosophy, so to speak, sideways. Um, so I still work on, as I said, philosophy of psychology, and my undergrad degree is actually in psychology. And okay. so what happened to me is I was very interested in certain theoretical issues in psychology and really frustrated, actually, with the way they were approached in psychology as a, as a field. Um, and um, in particular, I was just frustrated with the, uh, the lack of interest in evolutionary theory um, among the psychologists that I had worked with and, and known and, and in the field in general. I think in my whole undergraduate major, there was one 15-minute lecture on what was then the emerging field of evolutionary psychology, and that was it for evolution <laughs> in my whole undergraduate major. And to me, those were the most interesting questions in psychology were ones about okay. evolution. Okay. So I was frustrated that I couldn't approach those issues very well from within psychology, but more broadly, I was frustrated that it's a really, frankly, a fairly atheoretical discipline. Um, hmm. The way it looks to me is in, you know, in, so if you're a biologist and, you, and you're studying spiders in the rainforest or something like that, nobody really cares about the spiders in the rainforest themselves. You're interested in the spiders as a model species. They represent some larger principle or some larger um, set of issues or dynamics, culture, or evolutionary dynamics or something like that. And um, so you're using them as a model species to find out other more general things. And so um, you're interested hmm. in more, more fundamental theoretical issues, and that's why you're looking at that spider. In psychology, okay. things are completely different. People are interested in the model species. It's not a model of anything. The species itself is the object of interest. And so in hmm. a sense – what psychology is is a big bag of or like a, just a sort of loose collection of interesting facts about people um, because facts about people are interesting in themselves. You don't have to tie them into something more theoretical. And the gradually as psychology has evolved, the form that's taken is that what what you know almost everybody is interested in is finding new sexy things that we didn't know people did before. But that means it's a science of observation. It's all observation all the time. It's all doing new experiments to find some new thing that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And nobody's really that interested in what the theoretical payoff of those findings are because, hey, they're people. They're all, the findings are already interesting in the first place. Um, that, I think, actually has uh, it, I mean, it has a positive side in the sense that, well, you can, you know, there are lots of psychologists and psychologists can get jobs doing lots of things like – you know, educational psychology or organizational industrial uh, things. On the other hand, it's really detrimental to the science itself because mm -hmm. I think the fact that, that so much of what happens goes on without regard for larger theoretical concerns makes it generally a sort of atheoretical discipline. Um, and so I was really interested in theory and the role of theory, again, evolutionary theory in particular. Hmm. Um, but I really think the problem is that in psychology, they're not that interested in theory in general. Uh, obviously, this isn't true of every single psychologist, right? Sure, sure. Um, but but I, it is large. absolutely true, I think, of the discipline uh, on the whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, basically, in a way, I got out of psychology so that I could do theoretical psychology okay. because nobody would hire me to do theoretical. You know, like in physics, you've got theoretical physicists and experimental physicists. Right, right, right. In psychology, everybody is an experimental psychologist, and nobody will hire you to be a theoretical psychologist. So in a way, the work that they're doing is, or at least from your experience, um, sort of 
yeah, who who can like somebody says, as it turns out, seven out of ten people lie to their mothers, you know, eighty six percent of the time or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and so uh-huh. like, yeah, they're trying to find those things. And in a way, that is fascinating just right. in and of itself, right. because this mm-hmm. is how humans behave. And sometimes and, important, not just fascinating. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. And and also I imagine there's gotta be that payoff from the experimental standpoint where it is sort of like, wow, I didn't know that this was gonna be, you know, the outcome of this, or I didn't know that humans behave like this. And so um, and, and sure, that's interesting, but in terms of your approach to it, you wanted to then take not just some of that experimental data, but just some of the themes or maybe topics, if I'm understanding, and theorize what that means in terms of particularly um, just the, the evolution of human being from an evolutionary standpoint. Yes, um, although in a lot, like to take that a little bit further, what, sure. the reason I wanted to theorize about it is because, as in the rest of science, theory is also a really good way of doing experimentation. I mean, I the, the the downside, I think, the cost to the science of psychology of being so atheoretical is that people aren't using theories to guide their experimentation, and so as a result, you just have you know observations all over the place, not especially organized by any general theoretical principle, many of which are frankly not that interesting. I mean, everybody's looking for the cool, (laughs) interesting, sexy findings, but a lot of it is, you know, frankly, people just, just, yeah, taking relatively banal folk intuitions about psychology and demonstrating them rigorously. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, It turns out people do suck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and so, I mean, really, I think what happened is I had some, I couldn't even have you know, articulated this for myself at the time, but I had some sense that there's something deeply wrong about just doing observation willy nilly. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead I wanted to, you know, figure out how this, you know, how some real kind of unifying theory could be applied. Now, also at the time, the best thing I had for a unifying theory was, was genetic evolution. And it is true that that's, uh, ill fit with psychology as a unifying theory. I mean, you can do some unification in, in the sense that uh, certainly ev- genetic evolution has a lot of important implications for human psychology, um, for human behavior. I mean, you know, we get hungry for the same reason that tigers get hungry, which is, you know, the same reason that mice and cockroaches get hungry. We all have this, psych- you know, the psychological motivations of hunger, and we all have it for the same reasons. And it that has a big impact on the way we act. You know, hmm. this is mm-hmm. certainly an important part of explaining animal behavior in general. Uh, and the same could be said, of course, for all kinds of things, motivations for breathing, thirst, sex, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's absolutely the case that genetic evolution is a very important thing in human psychology. That was what was driving me in the first place. On the other hand... Um, what genetic evolution is good for is explaining genetically inherited traits. And there are a lot of psychological traits that are basically, in a sense, too specific. Or I guess the point is genetic selection itself, genetic evolution itself, is too coarse-grained to capture a lot of stuff that's really important in human psychology. Okay. Um, Could you give an example of that? So I did my um, honors thesis in uh, as an undergrad on um, – source monitoring and memory conjunction errors, uh, which I can tell you is quite typical of the sort of thing that was frustrating to me about psychology. It was just, you know, source monitoring is how do you keep track of where you learned information from? Okay. And memory conjunction errors are where, you know, let's see, if, what's a, I'm trying to think of a quick example. Um, you know, if somebody uh, tells you to find Seagrove Drive and somebody else tells you it's off of, um, oh, right. okay. you know, 
uh, Crestview Street, and then you go looking for C, 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 View and C Crest Grove, Grove Street. Yeah, yeah whatever yeah, yeah. I said. Anyway, um, yeah. you can I, I you believe can you join. just had a memory conjunction there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and um, so the question was, what is what is what are the effects of where you get your information from on your memory conjunction errors? Interesting. Okay. But your memory conjunction errors, I mean, that's a highly artificial. I mean, they happen in the real world, mm-hmm. but it's not clear how interesting they are in general. They're interesting to cognitive psychologists only in the sense that they're you know something that you can study in a rigorous way. You know, you can you can put real sort of tight methodological screws on your experiments, and you really know what you're measuring. And so interesting. Um, but, you know, genetic evolution itself is only going to tell you so much about a phenomenon like that. So I would get into these debates with my thesis advisor. And <laughs> I wanted to talk about evolution all the time, and he was just sort of like, oh, what is it with you in evolution? <laughs> um, and, you know, it, so, so my point is it's certainly true that if, what, you, if you're, what you're interested in as the sort of like unifying theory is evolutionary theory, that's only going to take you so far in psychology. I, yeah, yeah. You know. um, however, add culture to that. Um, now, I'll go ahead and say, even then, it's not like that's necessarily going to explain everything you want to explain. But the scope and the level of the, the fineness of grain that you get out of an evolutionary perspective when you add cultural evolution to genetic evolution, and you can think about evolution as a, a co-evolutionary process between genes and culture, now you can start talking about a whole lot more and get a lot more specific and a lot more fine-grained in the way that you look at psychology um, from an evolutionary lens. I also have ideas about how to extend an evolutionary perspective beyond genetic selection, beyond cultural selection. Um, there are ways which you could look at individual learning as a selection process. It's not a Darwinian selection process because you're not talking about um, changes in frequencies in populations, but you could look at it as you know learning. Um, reward is selection for one behavior or one thought pattern over alternatives in, a, in something like a repertoire. And, okay. um, and things going badly is selection against doing things that way again in the future. Um, Interesting. And in ways like that, um, you can, you can I look at selection on multiple dimensions, and I think that might be a way of getting something more like a comprehensive unifying theory. Um, that's just, um, I don't know. Brain. A unifying theory of evolution. More like a unifying theory of psychology. Of psychology. Yeah. Okay, thank the, you. The, the, you define psychology in terms of explanation by identifying functions. Functions are defined by etiology, that's to say where they come from, mm-hmm. more specifically selection processes. Mm-hmm. But you're going to be too narrow in your scope if the selection process you're looking at is just genetic evolution, or even I see. just, or rather just genetic selection, or even just genetic selection plus cultural selection. Right, right. But now you add genetic selection, cultural selection, individual learning, if you can look at that as a selection process there are other like in in neural um in uh, neuroscience there are ways of looking at um uh selection between neurons and between neural you know ways that nerves fire and things like that so what i'm thinking is if you go broadband with selection processes themselves now you've got something that's both unifying and uh, much broader in scope than any particular selection process interesting so you're sort of looking for the m theory of uh (laughs) Of psychology. I mean, here's the thing. I ended up in philosophy because I am, at the end of the day, one of these people who I I, want to know how it all fits together. I mean, I love uh, Wilfred Sellers has this quote about how, you know, philosophy is roughly the quote is something like philosophy is, um, you know, philosophers study how things in the broadest sense of the term hang together in the broadest sense of the term. 
Um, and that is absolutely true of me. And that's what was driving me crazy about psychology was that nobody was interested in that. <laughs> and that was really what I was interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, Let me yeah. ask you, well, real quick, I just want to say, so uh, that Sellers quote, I love it. So this reminds me of, okay, so my background was 20th century American poetry, but there was a, a uh, scholar who was um, oh, Grossman. I can't remember his first name now, and I'm really sorry because he was, you know, a major figure in like modernist poetry criticism but he says something to the effect of there's basically three standard meters in poetry less than 10 syllables more or less iambic pentameter so less than iambic pentameter more or less iambic pentameter more or less and more than iambic <laughs> pentameter more or less so it's like a similar sort of that struck me as like somehow being like a similar sort of uh, uh quote that you just gave us or idea from sellers that like yeah um <laughs> that there's so much range and sort of margin for error and it's hard to maybe exactly pin these things down and yet they seem to be like so crucial and when you are a philosopher it seems like you're part of a community that kind of understands like <laughs> this gray area and this you know like that that the absolute may be hard to really sort of find a way to pull it out theoretically but that's at least what's like made you curious to go on this path of discovery and to try to figure these things out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Probably not a great articulation of what you're saying, but for some reason, intuitively, it just struck me as a similar kind of idea for people who study like poetry in a formal sense. It's like, well, you just kind of have these basic three things and they're kind of all the same, you know? <laughs> um, real quick, though, that was really interesting. I just want to ask you, so, and thanks for bringing it back to the philosophy. So what was it that then led you to study this strictly like from, well, I shouldn't say strictly, but um, like within the field of philosophy? Did you then, like, was your graduate work in philosophy was there a particular theorist or scholar or philosopher or book like what was sort of the moment where you or like something you read maybe or a class you took where you said like that's really what I want to do because my honors thesis advisor keeps asking me why I want to talk about evolution you know like what was it that sort of then shifted your yeah well um, I have an unusually short answer for a philosopher to a question like that (laughs) Darwin's dangerous idea the book by Dan Dennett I was working. Nice. I was working at um, Emory University in the years in the psychiatry department at Emory University in the years after I graduated from undergrad. And one of the doctors that I um, worked for there found out that I was kind of an evolution buff, and he was too. And he was like, "Oh, you got to read this book by this guy um, Dan Dennett." Um, who I had never heard of Dennett at the time. And you weren't a grad student, though. Sorry, but you were. This was you were just nope. working in the department. Okay, yeah. so you're just working, making. A yeah, living. I was. I was like working in the office. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Nice. Um, at the psychiatry department in the med school at Emory, and um, nice. uh, so. Um, so then I went and got Darwin's Dangerous Idea and started reading. It was like, holy cow, you can write books like this as a philosopher? Sign me up. Yes, sir. Like, that's all I need to know. That's awesome. Um, because, that's you know, awesome. it was. It was all about cognition and psychology, and it was all about how important evolution was for making sense of cognition and psychology and all those sorts of things. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I've been looking for. And, you know, in psychology, it was like I'd start talking about this stuff and, you you know, you'd get this kind of like raised eyebrow. Well, but that's biology. And, you know, my thinking was, so what? 
you know, hmm. biology is the study of living things. Humans are living things. You know, our behavior is totally within the scope of biology. So we should be talking about biology. I mean, psychology just is a subset of biology. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, or, you know, people would want to say, well, that's anthropology or, you know, or something right. like that. And I just felt like, so what? It's science, isn't it? Um, and within the sciences, what type of science you're doing matters. But in philosophy, nobody cares what science. I mean, in philosophy, people get worried about whether you're doing science and not philosophy. But as long as they're okay with the fact that you're talking a lot about science, they don't care what science you're talking about. And and from a philosopher's standpoint, it's completely natural to be ranging from economics to anthropology to biology as needed, you know. Um, And so that was very attractive to me. I mean, philosophy in that sense is the original interdisciplinary degree. Hmm. It's just pure theory before all these disciplines spun off of philosophy. You know, science itself is mostly what they used to call natural philosophy. And then it would spin off into various specific things. But I mean, even even just 150 years ago, I mean, people like Darwin were still thought of themselves as natural philosophers. And insofar as you're doing that, you're reading geology as much as you are biology. (laughs) It's impossible to do these days because... Nobody can become an expert in geology and biology at the same time to say nothing about all these other disciplines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but f- philosophy proceeds, I think, in a way, as you're saying, you're, you're happy to just jump into a gray area like that, not really be an expert in any of those things in particular. Where the expertise lies is in how you look for how things in the broadest possible sense hang together in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's sort of what I was thinking. I mean, it's interesting that for you, you really did have a moment where you thought, oh, that's what I want to do, because maybe in a sense, that was sort of what you always wanted to do. But, you know, being in a psychology department or whatever, like just not to disparage psychology departments, but the particular place maybe you were at or the people you're working with. Like, so that's awesome that you and your sort of journey to philosophy, you really did have that moment or that book, in this case, the book by Dennett, where like, suddenly you were like, oh, that's what I want to be doing. And then I assume from there you started sending out uh, applications and like, here you are. You it, it is basically that simple. And then I, I got to go study with Dennett. I mean, then I got that's into awesome. the master's program at Tufts and um, right off the bat, I was studying consciousness uh, with, with Dan Dennett. And that was my introduction to philosophy, basically. And even then Fantastic. it was this funny sort of thing where then it was like, there's the cold bath of jumping into a new field that you don't know anything about. And realizing, oh, there are vast swathes of philosophy that are nothing like <laughs> what got me into this in the first place and not not interesting to me at all. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I had to do a lot of eating my vegetables and doing my master's degree where there were a few people doing the really sort of sciencey evolutionary stuff that I loved, and I loved doing that. But then three, four, three quarters of my work in the master's degree was doing all kinds of metaphysics and philosophy of language and <laughs> sort of straight up epistemology. And none of that was very interesting to me. I just had to, but I had to learn it, you know, and I had to get into this new field. Um, and, um, you know, and, and it was totally worth it. I mean, to, to be able to, to um, I mean, f- first of all, I was frustrated by all those things when I was just encountering them for the first time, really didn't appreciate them, really didn't know enough about them and didn't really understand what they had to offer, even me, you know, much less what they have to offer more broadly in, in general. Interesting. And as I was forced to grapple uh, grapple with uh, those kinds of issues, I began to see their sort of utility. And um, <laughs> broadly where it all came is that, I mean, I, there are still ways in which I have, you know, I do a lot of work still with scientists. That's still my primary focus. I'm like, I'm trying to apply, basically what I'm trying to do is apply philosophical training to scientific questions, partly because in the sciences, it's like um, pure conceptual work doesn't even exist. It's like not even on people's radar. Even fields that are 
that do have a good balance of theory and observation. Like biology, I think it's a very good balance of theory and observation. Okay. Um, but e- even then, you know, they don't really do just theory either. Um, so people just mm. sort of do both at the same time. I mean, modelers, modelers in a way do this, but they think of what they're doing as modeling, not as conceptual work. Um, and more generally in the sciences, there is still an assumption that, that you, somewhere in there you've got to have data, right? Um, and you're not surely you're not just doing conceptual work, um, and so I think I think that's an unfortunate thing. I mean, I think so. For example, um, this paper that I published uh, as part of the sustainability cluster with Lee Raymond and Aaron Hennis, we published it in Nature Sustainability, and in my mind, this was just a theory paper. I mean, this is we were doing scientific work, but we were applying a new theory in a specific context. So it was all about just theoretically, you know, what is this? What does cultural evolution have to offer the science of sustainability? The, um, and we were talking about plenty of empirical studies and stuff, but we weren't doing any particular empirical work. We weren't presenting any new data. Hmm. And the the journal Nature Sustainability was interested in the paper. But in the end, we had to call it a perspectives piece. Um, and most journals are like this. They have a, a, what they want to call a perspectives or an opinion section or something. And they kept wanting to talk about it as an opinion piece. And that drove me crazy because it's not an opinion. It's an argument. Like there are reasons why this is the right conclusion. I'm not, this is not something that I like and, you know, maybe you like it too. Here are reasons why this is, you know, in some sense, objectively a you good way of studying sustainability. Yeah, you effectively got the this is a letter to the editor treatment yeah. from them and you're like, no. That, yeah, yeah, that's right. But the fact is that's how most of most science journals operate. If, if okay. you want to do something that's just a theory paper, the closest thing they have for a model for that is like a letter to the editor, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. an opinion section. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, I think that's terrible. I think, I think, that, I think it's yeah. just too bad that yeah. all science journals don't just have a section devoted to pure theory yeah. because all sciences certainly have theoretical problems and purely conceptual problems. So, so the, other, the flip side of this is philosophers are not experts in all the empirical facts of any particular discipline. What they are experts in is theory itself. And I think that most scientific fields, um, because of these reasons that I've just been giving, most scientific fields really would have a use for somebody who's just trained as a theoretician, punct, hmm. and comes in and does the, does the best they can as far as gathering the relevant empirical facts and getting some you know, sense of scope and some sense of expertise in that field. Um, but really what they're there for is looking at how it all fits together as a theoretician and as somebody trained as a theoretician. So as I learned more about philosophy and you know, was forced to do more philosophy of language and metaphysics and you know, mainstream epistemology and things that I was not interested in in the beginning, um, one thing that definitely happened is I became a much better theoretician. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, then you go work with a bunch of science scientists and you hear a lot of bad arguments and you hear a lot of just, you know, frankly, not very good theoretical reasoning. And these are people who, you know, there are some things they're really, really good at, like coming up with experiments, designing models. And, you know, modelers are in a way a special case because modeling kind of is pure conceptual work. Um, and, yeah. I, and I actually find that modelers, <clears throat> while they're not – you know they're not philosophers. They really know exactly what they mean. <laughs> they they have really really pinned down. You know wh- whether what they mean match it maps onto the empirical world or not. That's another question. Yeah, yeah. But they have their definitions straight. Right. right. <laughs> they know what they're saying. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. know what the implications are yeah. and what they aren't. Um, yeah. And for the so, model to make any sense, it needs to be very. 
yeah. strictly defined and clearly sort of set out in the parameters. So, yeah, that's interesting. Sort of the, uh, yeah, engineers in a sense, you know, modelers, like this is, it needs to be this way. These numbers need to fit. These need to be right angles or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and so basically, metaphorically, basically the point is you need some people who are like that, who are frankly doing pure conceptual work, Okay. working with other people who are, you know, observationalists um, and you know, one thing I'll say on the other side, what psychologists are incredibly good at and very talented and creative at is figuring out how to get the observations that matter. You know, one, hmm. one, if, if you do know what you're looking for, they can come up with these incredibly clever and ingenious ways of finding it in a very controlled, very clear, precise way. So, I mean, so basically the way I look at it is we just need to open our eyes in a way to the division of labor between, on one hand, people who are straight-up observationalists, and that's what they do, and that's where their expertise lies. People who are like modelers who are doing, in a sense, the conceptual side, but in the language of mathematics, which interfaces, of course, in the crucial ways with the language of data. I take data to be quantified observation. So if you're getting it in number form, models are a crucial way conceptually of organizing observations. But then I also think there's a need for conceptual work that's not modeling, and it's not in the language of math. It's just in the language that everybody speaks. Um, it's in you know verbal terms. Hmm. And hmm. you know you think about how different models fit together. You think about basically the theory on which the models are based. I mean, the theory that gives the models its definitions and its reasons for relating the variables in the way they are. Um, and so so I so the basic breakdown here is I I mean I take theoretical work in the sense in which philosophers are trained in pure theory and things like modeling to both be, so to speak, conceptual work independent from observation. Um, but they're not the same kind of conceptual work. And basically, I just think science needs all three of these things. That's awesome. Now, I want to come back to this article, um, if I may. So the title of the article is Cultural Evolution of Normative Motivations for Sustainable Behavior. And again, the authors are yourself, obviously, Aaron Hennis, who is here at Purdue, I believe, in the psychology department. And Lee Raymond is in political science, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. um, and that was in the journal Nature Sustainability. Um, and I think we can all agree it's one of the best letters to the editor I've ever read. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, this is really this is really good. So um, just to uh, ask you a couple questions in the time we have left, uh, just a couple questions about um, some of the terminology and, so, you know, some of the concepts framework and theoretical framework that's at play here. And then I have a question um, that maybe we can wrap up on eventually uh, just, well, I'll get there, but a frustration I have, and I'd be curious with your expertise in this, like a way we could think about it. So first I thought this idea of the dual inheritance theory um, was really interesting. Um, I thought if you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just explain to the audience what the dual inheritance theory is, um, and how that applies, not only, I mean, you've sort of been talking around this, but um, in this piece, in this perspective piece in Nature Sustainability, but also then, um, yeah, just what the motivation was maybe for you guys to apply it in this particular, in this particular way. Okay, yeah. So um, in studying cultural evolution with Dan Dennett, I was exposed to the meme theory of cultural evolution, which is still, in a sense, unfortunately, in popular life, still what most people think of as cultural evolution, um, to the point that even scientists, uh, many scientists, when they think of cultural evolution, that's really the only version of it they know. 
Um, that's unfortunate because it, that approach to cultural evolution, frankly, isn't the best one. Uh, the dual inheritance theory is um, has been far more fruitful um, and, uh, so to speak, accurate. I mean, it, it has actually spawned an, a whole wide range of new empirical observations, made a new range of empirical predictions that then people have gone and looked at and have actually been borne out um, and, you know, and confirmed. Um, and the meme theory has a sort of metaphysical grip, and uh, it, it sounds cool and sexy and interesting, but it has not really done much from a scientific, it hasn't really paid off in any real way scientifically. And, and in a nutshell, like how, what, if someone was applying the meme theory, like what, is that, what does that look like? Yeah, what so is it? the difference is in, in the meme theory, you're looking at cultural, let's say, cultural representations, beliefs, or cultural norms okay. as memes, which is to say um, in, uh, they are replicate, they, they are replicated. And this is coming off of the model of genes replicating each other. Um, and so when you're looking at how cultural beliefs or practices or norms spread and which ones are more successful than which other ones, so which ones spread at the expense of other ones, um, you're conceiving of that in such a way that each cultural variant or each, each meme is in a population of memes. Um, and when a meme gets copied, it's reproducing itself in the way that an organism is reproducing itself. But when you do that... When that's your model of of um, a trait being passed from one individual to another, when you create a new copy of the trait, you also create a new individual in the population. So when you're looking at, at cultural uh, transmission as replication like this, um, what you're doing, the meme is a biological individual. And when one when mm-hmm. a meme replicates itself, another biological individual pops up, and mm-hmm. the population mm-hmm. that you're looking at is a population of memes taken as their own individuals. Okay. The dual inheritance theory differs from that in that um, you never really talk about the meme as an individual in its own right. The cultural trait is it's not its own individual; it's a trait of an in, of an individual, a human being. Um, so the population that you're looking at is a population of of people humans, not a population of memes. And when you're talking about a trait being copied or transmitted from one person to another, the way to look at that is not replication, but just inheritance, just like in genetic inheritance. So um, whereas, you know, you get your, you know, let's say your um, hot temper, you can inherit that from your parents genetically. um, Check. (laughs) And when you do that, uh, in the course of that, you know, that inheritance was also the result of creating a new individual in the population, a, hmm. a new hmm. person, you, you know, um, if you're the, the one doing the inheriting. Um, uh, alternatively, if you inherit your hot temper from your parents, not through your genes, but by learning, just by seeing that this is the natural way to respond to the world by getting getting angry about it quickly, um, then um, from the dual inheritance perspective, a trait is getting copied from one individual to another, the parent to the child, but no new individuals are appearing in the population. The, the same number of individuals are already there in the population, the, the parent and the child, but the, cha- the frequencies of traits are still changing hmm. because now that trait has been copied from one individual to another, so it's a little bit more frequent in the population than it was before. Interesting. Okay. Um, so the dual inheritance approach to cultural evolution says you've got people, that's your population, they've got traits, and then there are two ways of inheriting traits, genetically 
or culturally by learning. And so cultural evolution and cultural selection focuses on traits that are transmitted by learning. And genetic evolution and genetic selection are due to traits that are transmitted genetically through reproduction. And those, and those two are two can com- affect one another. Yeah, they're two completely different Darwinian processes. Mm-hmm. But because they're different, they can be causally related. Okay. And, and in fact, they are causally related. And so you end up with these um, co-evolutionary relationships where you can get, you know, feedback loops and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Genetic evolution and cultural evolution, um, where the, you know, genetic evolution causes, you know, affects a certain trajectory of cultural evolution. But then after a while, that trajectory of cultural evolution then feeds back and changes genetic selection pressures in various ways. Interesting. So take norms, for example. Mm -hmm. Norms are culturally inherited traits. People learn what's right or wrong from the people around them. You're you're not just born thinking that, um, you know, it's... uh, wrong to run right through a stop sign or something like that. You, you learn norms from the people around you. You know, you learn to say please and thank you. You're not born saying that. And um, so the, those are culturally inherited traits. So the relevant selection process is cultural, not genetic. But after a while, selection acting on norms um, can create a situation where, you know, a certain norm is very common in the population. So this norms against murder, norms against stealing, norms against adultery, all kinds of things like that. And what I mean by a norm, the way I would define a norm, is basically culturally transmitted enforcement. So norms are ways that we enforce behavior on each other, um, that, that we learn from each other. And enforcement mostly takes the form of punishment or reward. Either way, um, I mean, reward is also enforcement in, in the relevant sense. So if you have cultural selection acting on a norm, over a period of time, what that does is stabilize within a population a practice of enforcement. Those enforcements matter for genetic evolution. Um, you know, getting thrown in jail for a number of years is bad for your genetic fitness. Um, getting hung <laughs> or, you know, having your head cut off is even worse for your genetic fitness. Um, Although it might make you look better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so basically the idea is that normative enforcement uh, imposes very strong genetic selection pressures. Yeah. So as a result, we have genetically evolved a number of psychological traits for dealing with norms. Um, so, so there's this co-evolutionary interaction between first just general abilities for social learning, which set up the process of cultural evolution, which then allows individuals to learn. One thing people learn from each other is enforcement practices, norms. Once you do that, that then changes the genetic selection pressures in a way that makes people better at identifying norms, better Hmm. at learning norms, better at following norms, more motivated to follow norms, more motivated to enforce norms on other people. And so (laughs) we have all these genetic traits as a result of that co-evolutionary history that make us, you know, finely tuned to norms. And we, we swim in a world of norms in a way that, that's almost invisible to us. Um, I can't tell you how many norms you're not violating right now that you've learned to not violate. <laughs> right, you, right, right. That you otherwise would be if you'd just grown up with wolves or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so in your last couple minutes here, because I know you have you have things to get on to do, I real quick just want to remind people that this is in Nature Sustainability. The title of the article is Cultural Evolution of Normative Motivations for Sustainable Behavior. And to bring this back to sustainability, at least from an environmental perspective, let me ask you this, and I realize this is sort of jumping from some of the premises of the article, maybe to just applying this in a sort of way, but just in the in the few minutes we have left. So 
I'm wondering how we can take some of these principles and apply them to encouraging or building practices, better practices of environmental sustainability. I grew up here in Indiana. One of the things that to this day makes no sense to me is you see these kids or even like driving around campus that probably grew up in a rural area where there was a strong tradition of farming and maybe there used to be a family farm so many generations ago, but now it's like a big farm, you know, whatever. Um, but they drive these huge trucks and roll coal. Are you familiar with rolling coal where they're yeah. like spewing out the black? And it's just like, you're like from a generation of farmers, gener- you know, like a, from a small town that probably in some way relies on the land and the environment to produce probably soy or corn if it's in Indiana. And, then- and granted, you might not own that farm anymore, but you know, there's some history of like needing to like shepherd the earth and take care of it and use the earth, you know, for like economic sustainability of mm-hmm. this particular region, your family, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then it seems like you're directly sort of, you know, violating like, the what should be in my opinion um you know some sort of sacred aspect of the earth like as much as we can to really try and take care of it um so i'm wondering and you guys talk about incentives a little bit and the way incentives affect people how do you think we can apply some of this theory to maybe incentivize or maybe i should ask you do you think we need to try and incentivize sustainability or do you think we can somehow just through this evolutionary process build a practice whereby it just becomes a sort of norm where people say treating the environment poorly is just the wrong thing to do it's just a bad thing to do do you think that we will ever get to that place do you think we should avoid that do you think we need to incentivize this behavior like how how do you see that maybe playing out especially recently as i'm sure you know the report um that came out recently that says you know the two degree mark is really (laughs) that we need to shoot for 1.5 degrees because the difference between 1.5 degrees global warming or whatever is um yeah is even worse Worse than two degrees and things like that you know there it's a it's a topic it's out there but on a day-to-day community level how do we so encourage people to do what you know to think about sustainability and the way it affects them yeah okay so there is a, a whole lot to unpack there let me see if yeah, I can yeah i'm very sorry succinctly. i didn't mean to uh here here's my look my my view of it so i've you know as i was just sort of getting into i really look at the psychology of norms um from an evolutionary perspective um, and what my angle on sustainability is looking at um, or, or sort of focusing on norms of sustainability. Um, so that's to say the idea that the right thing to do is to behave in some more sustainable way. Um, now, sustainability, again, the content of that norm can be all kinds of different things. You might just be worried about the sustainability of this plot of land right here, which is mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking following most other people who these days talk about sustainability, I'm thinking about something like sustainability of the whole planet, not just this plot of land. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And when that's your concern, uh, the sustainability of everybody in this global sense, um, the the form of the norm is something like this. Well, look, the right thing to do is to do things that may be quite costly for you, drive less, fly less, don't eat meat, you know, use a, use a reusable water bottle instead of buying a new water bottle everywhere you go, something like that. All, all of these things, you know, turn off your lights. All of the costs that people are asked to pay for the sake of sustainability, what they're asked, the reason, you know, the, the beneficiaries of those costs are things like people on the other side of the world who are at risk of, like, their whole island getting flooded. Yeah. Um, future people who don't even exist yet. 
uh, ecosystems, mm-hmm. which aren't even people, or, or mm-hmm. species, which aren't even people, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do you motivate people to care about those kinds of things? Yeah. Like you're not, it's not even for pe- other, you know, it's not sometimes not even for people at all, or it's for people that you'll never meet and will never know. Um, why? W- how would you motivate people to do that kind of thing and pay those costs? Well, it turns out, psychologically, we actually have a capacity for doing precisely that, be acting in pro-social ways at cost to yourself, even when the beneficiaries of those costs are people you, you, know, you have no idea about, people you don't know, total strangers. And the evolutionary history that gave us that capacity is um, the one that made us large-scale cooperators. And um, the way this all kind of fits together is that when you are, have control of that whole evolutionary trajectory, that gene cultural coevolutionary trajectory and the role of norms in sustaining large-scale cooperation, um, what you end up with is seeing that we have what I think of as just a norm system in our head with all these capacities for dealing with norms. One of the capacities within the norm system is the capacity to be intrinsically motivated to follow a norm and to enforce a norm. Um, and in, by intrinsically motivated, I mean you're not motivated to do it for any other reason, like because you don't want to go to jail or because you want other people to like you. That would be an instrumental motivation for following a norm. An intrinsic motivation for following a norm means you're going to do it just because it's the right thing to do. Then that's the end of the story as far as you're concerned. Um, you know, a lot of us would also, you know, we don't want to go to jail, and that's maybe one reason why we don't go around killing people, but that's not the main reason we go around not killing people. Yeah. We don't kill people because we don't want to kill people. Yeah, we don't yeah. want to hurt people, right? Yeah. And we're just intrinsically motivated that way. Um, and so the, I think the ultimate solution here is going to have to be not so much incentivizing people because that would be operating on their instrumental motivations, but really getting people to internalize norms of sustainability so that they're motivated intrinsically to behave in sustainable ways. So it's not for the sake of people they don't know, and it's maybe not even for the sake of the ecosystem or anything like that. It's just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that is the only thing I've ever seen that looks like a real solution to the global problem of sustainability. And it comes from the, the way we've solved collective action problems in our evolutionary history. Um, so the you know, model again, we, is there. Yeah, it's it, just a matter of applying the it. The model is there, and we have the capacity in our heads to do the very yeah, thing that we need to do. We, right, we're yeah, capable yeah. of doing it. We just need to figure out how to get people to actually internalize those norms. And I'm, that, I'm not saying just as if that's easy. Yeah, yeah. But that is, that's, I think, the solution. Um, and now the question is, uh, can we get there? If there are any develop- developmental psychologists listening, contact me immediately. I am trying to get any sort of psychologist I can find to be interested in this question that I have used theory to identify. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you so much. That was a, that was really fun. Again, our guest today, and we're very glad to have him, but he's got more important places to be. Uh, Assistant Professor, Purdue Department of Philosophy, Taylor Davis. Again, Nature Sustainability is the journal, and this is a piece he co-authored with Aaron Hennis and Lee Raymond. Lee Raymond, sorry. It is Cultural Evolution of Normative Motivations for Sustainable Behavior. Taylor, thanks so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.